This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland, and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land, and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Today's show is not about China or Taiwan. It's not about spending more on submarines. And it's not about accepting the common sense that our government is well prepared to protect us from climate chaos. It's about the security risk of inaction on the climate enemy we ourselves are creating. It's also about the security risks to our public service who need to give government frank and fearless advice without losing their jobs. We follow on the revelations of the recent brilliant Four Corners program called Shadow State. The, the risks that we, we see from negligent, inadvertent or deliberate um, breaches of confidence is, is multiplied by, by the sheer number of consultants that are in embedded in our in our defense establishment and by their the, by the fact that we we know that they are riddled with conflicts of interest first we go to senator david shoebridge who in parliament called on the government to put a report on the table they've been sitting on it since november when senator david pocock asked for it they said it was classified so Senator Shoebridge asked for a declassified version, but still it's in the shadows. Second, we'll talk to Ian Dunlop from Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration. He says that their first climate and security risk assessment will likely show that our greatest challenge is political instability and failed states in our region. If you don't have food, you don't have water, communities can't function. Now, that's what we're facing. The military are interested in climate from a security point of view. But the fact is that all they're interested in is, well, what does it mean for the way we fight wars and how prepared are we going to have to be and so on? Now, I mean, this is, a, this is a total systems issue. Ian says that drought, flood and fire will force people out of their homes and the temptations to elect authoritarian leaders who promise to get the chaos under control, are very high. The perils of climate inaction 
are staring us in the face. Here's David Shoebridge. Uh, Senator David Shoebridge, Greens for New South Wales, has the Defence and Veterans Affairs as one of his portfolios. I know him mostly for his heightened climate consciousness and deep respect for First Nations people. If someone locks onto the coal trains or gas projects fueling climate chaos, David is always outside the court in their defence. He shows up. But now he says there is something rotten in the centre of the Defence Department. And I want to know what can be done about it. So welcome, David. Firstly, what's involved in having that defence portfolio? Uh, well, it's a... It's a it's a it's a huge amount of work, obviously. Um, and I have the justice portfolio and the defence portfolio, um, as well as the science portfolio for the party. Um, the truth of the matter is, there is enough work in defence to occupy my entire team seven days a week. Um, and so we have to really prioritise the work we do in the space. And so we have focused on um, key accountability measures in the defence space obviously the climate space, as well as pushing back against what is a, a wall of pro-war narrative um, that is coming from both Labor and the coalition. Um, but of course, you know, <laughs> within that, I, I find myself um, uh, chasing down some of the appalling mis mismanagement of public funds, you know, billions and billions of dollars being spent on weapon systems that don't make us any safer and indeed don't even operate in accordance with the uh, the original specs. So um, you ask me what's in defence, potentially an entire political life could get sucked down the hole that is the uh, defence portfolio. Uh, we try and keep it as focused as we can. Yeah. Well, you said that the big four consultancies, we've heard quite a bit about that lately, that they've targeted the defence department as a sort of source of unlimited growth. And that the largest one, KPMG, is ripping the government off. Well, I want to know, how is this a security risk? Well, I mean, one of the obvious security risks is that is thousands and thousands of people um, in these different consultants being often embedded directly in the military um, and in all the associated agencies and, and, and having in many cases, you know, equal access to high-ranking defence officials. Um, that of itself massively expands the risk of information being leaked or lost, particularly given that these are people who aren't public officials and they may one day be working for the, the Australian public and the, the, the Defence Department and the next day working for Lockheed Martin, a contractor trying to take billions of dollars from the government or working for a corporation um, that uh, the, a multinational corporation that's tendering for other work for defence. The, the, the risks that we, we see from negligent, inadvertent or deliberate um, breaches of confidence is, is multiplied by, by the sheer number of consultants that are in, embedded in our defence uh, in our defence establishment, and by their, the, by the fact that we we know that they are riddled with conflicts of interest. Yeah, well, look, the defence people, as you said, they're set up for war. You know, they talk war. They're looking at China. They, the war is always out there somewhere. Meanwhile, you know about climate change. It's hitting all of us 
internally. And I noticed, I read this about the Tyndall Air Force Base up in the Northern Territory. And in 1988, they, all the people on that base would have witnessed the worst floods in Northern Territory history. And nearly the whole population of Catherine Town was evacuated. And yet recently Tyndall have received about a billion dollars, over a billion, to extend the runway and create new fuel storage facilities to improve the accessibility of the US Air Force aircraft. And I wonder, have they got the focus wrong, this outward focus? Is that all wrong to you? Uh, well, I mean, there's, there's a number of, there was a number of um, elements to, to that answer. Um, and we can probably deal with them in, you know, in separate bite-sized chunks. The first is, you know, what is our primary security risk as a nation? Uh, the, 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 the Albanese government, just like the Dutton government before, would like us to believe that our primary security risk, you know, the risk to the integrity and security of our nation comes from some militarised threat from China. Uh, and they've been desperately trying to persuade us of that and spend hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars um, to address this um, risk to our nationhood and our sovereignty. Um, uh, is that the risk, though? Is that the primary risk that Australia faces? I, I think anybody who's been observing the northern summer would be thinking, well, potentially the biggest risk to our stable society, our way of life, our... Um, our, our coherent um, nation is climate. Extreme heat, extreme fires, extreme flooding, uh, extreme storms. Uh, and, and not only is that a risk to, to our stability um, as a nation, our, our northern neighbours are especially vulnerable to those heightened climate risks, having a, a very large proportion of their population in vulnerable coastal communities and cities um, being in what's already a, um, a, an environment, you know, in the tropical and subtropical parts of uh, mm. Southeast Asia um, and South Asia that's already prone to extremes of weather. Uh, and, and the capacity of climate to drive regime instability, uncontrolled um, migration and refugee flows, um, a fight for resources, a fight for water, um, the, the prospects of un, un, unrestrained climate change on our region and the security risks that that face, um, if we're being cleared-eyed about it, you would think would dwarf the, the notional risk that we're all trying to, that the government's desperately trying to frighten us about of being caught up in some conflict with China. And I'm, I'm happy to discuss you know, at, at greater depth about why I think that that rhetoric about a conflict with China is grossly overblown and 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 quite dangerous for Australia. But staring us in the face is this huge national security risk, which is climate change. The government um, got a detailed report on it from the Office of National Intelligence, the ONI, which is the sort of premier national security strategic thinking body in, in the government. And um, they buried the report. They refused to show it to us. So, um, you know, I, if you if that doesn't concern people, that they've got the report on the the, the, the climate driven security risks and what the security risks out of untrammeled climate change are, and they're so troubled by it, they won't show it to us. 
Well, we're going to talk to Ian Dunlop from the Breakthrough People um, in a moment about that document, but you got up in Parliament recently and asked for it to be on the table by September the 4th. Well, that's quite close. Um, they've been sitting on it for nine months. Could you tell me what do you think's in it or why do you think they are doing that? Is it too, too explosive? Other countries have got these reports and published them. Well, the US has released its assessment of climate risk and defence and the security impacts of climate change, and, and it's quite chilling read. It suggests it's going to be perhaps one of the most significant security risks for the United States and talks about how their defence forces and many of their defence facilities are not actually climate ready. Um, so, you know, and, and the United States has not traditionally been at the forefront of dealing with climate action. <laughs> so... We've had a little bit of movement recently from the Biden administration, but the US is able to obtain the report using public funds, release it to the public and be open about it. Um, yet, for some reason, the Albanese government can't. Uh, now, it may well be, in fact, I think it's, I think it's close to certain that there will be some uh, information contained in the report by the ONI, which is appropriately classified as as secret. It may be that they have used um, channels within third countries, um, uh, you know, secure, secure information that they've obtained about the stresses within other countries' governments, the stresses within other countries' economies and militaries, um, which may actually have the nature of genuinely confidential information about it, that if it was disclosed, may disclose, you know, various sources of information in third countries. And uh, I perfectly understand that, that there may be an argument to withhold some of that from the public. And, and that's why the motion that I put to the Senate on behalf of the Greens was to produce a declassified version of the, the climate change and security report. Um, but the government refused that as well. I mean, my colleague, Senator Pocock, one of the independent senators, he had a motion. We ran them in parallel. Um, his one, a motion was show us the lot. And they said no. And so I said, well, show us the declassified version. And they still said no. Um, now, um, the, 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 I, I think whilst there is an argument for elements of it being, you know, classified as secret and, and not produced to the public, the conclusions, the conclusions, what, what they found in terms of the risks and the threats, there, I can see no valid argument for that being withheld from the public. I mean, because that information would help inform the public in the assessment about whether or not spending $400 billion on nuclear submarines is the best bang for our buck in mm. getting uh, addressing a national security crisis. Actually, maybe spending $400 billion rapidly decarbonising our economy, helping our neighbours decarbonise their economy and dealing with um, uh, climate resilience, actually, I suspect that that would provide far greater degree of national security than gambling it on uh, whether or not the United States is going to play ball with us and give us some nuclear submarines in 2040. Yeah, and it would put us in line with the IEA and with the United Nations and everyone. I've got a quote here, um, Antonio Gutierrez, which I think he's gnashing his teeth now, that poor man. Every proclamation he makes is more enormous. And he spoke of the fossil fuels, as the poisoned heart of climate change. And I wonder if defence faced this enemy, you know, the fossil fuel 
dominance of our world. Um, if they the, came uh, as the enemy, what would be the best way of getting the coal, oil and gas industry under control? Like if they said, okay, we, we realise that the source of this enormous threat is the fossil fuel industry. We are one of the major exporters of it. We need to advise government to, you know, bring this under control, a plan to phase it out, you know, buy it out, phase it down, do whatever. Do you think that would, you know, that would change? Uh well, any clear-eyed assessment of the vulnerabilities in our global system based upon fossil fuel supply chains um, would surely acknowledge the fact that not just in 2023, but historically, we've had global conflicts over energy and over access to fossil fuels. I mean, <laughs> anyone who thinks that the Kuwait war and then the Iraq war was anything other than a fight over energy and a fight over oil, um, I don't think was watching. Um, and, um, and that has created decades of global instability. Uh, and imagine a different world, though, where energy production is far more distributed, far more equitably distributed across, across the globe um, through a, a sort of interconnected series of renewable energy projects where countries can get a significant degree of energy sovereignty um, by producing renewable energy and other countries that have you know extraordinarily beneficial environments for producing renewable energy such as australia um, such as perhaps um, parts of um, uh, parts of africa or south america or north america countries that have um, uh, the capacity to produce a surplus of renewable energy can become the new energy superpowers, um, and and and, but but within a overall far more equitable, far more diversified global energy supply chain. So we're not just dominated by a few suppliers in the Middle East or a few suppliers in um, in North America. Now, a more equitable global energy market will reduce global tensions, um, will also increase a far more equitable share of wealth, um, and at the same time, be absolutely essential for addressing climate change. Um, wouldn't that be nice to see these things as connected um, and, and to actually have a federal government that was looking not just for our narrow uh, national interests, I think in a misconceived way, but narrow national interests, but also thinking that our national interests are served by having a more peaceful and equitable planet. Tiokasi Chatanziwiki Baha Michaje. I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart, which 3CR community radio is right here at 85 5 a.m. So it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back, Australia, to the Earth. Peace with Earth. Thank you. Teokas and Ghost Horse, community radio is your love. You know, let's talk about solutions now, how to get there. Um, we've done a whole series on system change, not climate change. Like what systems, like nationalise the great sectors, you know, the, the you know, main, main sectors in society. We've discussed that round and round, several programs about that. And the Greens have been putting up lots of ideas about 
cancelling donations, prohibiting donations in, from that fossil fuel industry into the parliament. But recently on Four Corners, they had a program called Shadow State, and they said that the public service was massively um, eroded now. It had been cold in the Abbott era, and we had this historian called Chris Wallace, and she said that now consultants are feasting on the public service. So here we get these consultants again. The you know um, the, the uh, public service is being replaced by these people who have profit as their motive. And um, she also Barbara Crabbe, and then Senator Barbara Pocock is one of the Greens. She said this is a threat to democracy also, as those firms are not accountable in the way that a public servant is. And I want to know: Do you think the Defence Department? would focus on the climate threat as we've been discussing if it received frank and fearless advice from a fortified public service. And my question is how? How do we get the public service to fortify itself in order to be frank and fearless? Well, first of all, I want to give credit to my colleague, Barbara Pocock. Um, uh, she's, from me, a class of 2022, a new Green Senator that's come in. She's from South Australia, and it's been a pleasure working with her in this space. As, um, she's been going out, being part of a couple of, you know, core senators, I think, exposing just the extent to which consultants have riddled our public service. Um, and, you know, we, we kick this off talking about defence. And, and the data that we've shown just in the last 10 years from defence shows that defence have spent in excess of $4 billion uh, on just the big four consultants in the last decade. And, and in actual fact, if you, if you look more closely at the numbers, you can see this massive ramp up in expenditure from 2016 onwards. So, you know, whilst consultants such as Ernst & Young, and KPMG and PwC were bringing in about 20 or $30 million a year from defence year each of them year in year out up to 2016 from 2016 onwards that the expenditure has just exploded the amount of money they've been getting out of defence has exploded so much so that in just one year last year last calendar year kpmg signed new or extended contracts to the value of 440 million dollars just with defence you know that's to give you some kind of context for that that's that's roughly four times the entire defence budget of Fiji. And it was just spent by defence on just one consultant, one of four major consultants. It's um, what do we get for $440 million from PwC? Or KPMG, sorry. What do we get $440 million from KPMG? I don't know. <laughs> but not a lot of safety. And, and you know, it would be the, and we talk about conflicts of interest. Of course, while KPMG is providing a strategic advice to the Australian Defence Force and Defence um, Department, you know, about protecting Australia's national interests, protecting force in the South China Sea, protecting our oil and gas assets, offshore assets. They are at the same time out there gunning for work in the oil and gas industry um, and gunning for work um, to expand Australia's oil and gas industry. Um, and, um, and, you know, to quote from just one part of KPMG's website, it says, with significant gas and oil reserves that are underexplored by global standards, there's still major potential for organic growth in these sectors, um, as these sectors remain critical to the Australian economy. They're, 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 they're pushing to expand the coal and gas industry 
at a time of climate crisis and they're advising defence about what our national security interests should look like. And it won't surprise you that a big part of what our defence force is doing is trying to protect the Australia's offshore coal and gas industry and protect our export channels for fossil fuels. You know, the conflicts are so appalling and, mm -hmm. and collectively go against the public interest. It's breathtaking. So what can we do? You asked what we could yeah. do. Yeah, no, Tony Abbott culled all the public service. Do you think we can restore them? It takes a long time to get really expert people in the public well, service. But... Well, I mean, the people in the... The, the people in the public service have every bit as much expertise as people in consultants. Um, there's no nothing special about consultants other than they get paid probably three times the amount a public servant gets for doing exactly the same mm. task. Um, uh, so I think it's a it is a rebuilding project. It starts it should start with a period of effectively cold turkey um, where we just get off the addiction for consultants. And if that means that slightly less shiny reports are produced in the next 18 to two years, um, I can live with that. I don't need to see another generic photoshopped image of someone in a schmick suit um, delivering a cup of coffee at the front of a $4 million report. I can survive without those being paid for by the public. Um, but it also is going to require some pretty hard truths being told about how this has happened because yes, some of a big chunk of this has been driven by a political direction from elected politicians who have been very happy to dumb down the public service um, and and very happy to um, effectively have a public service that contracts all the hard stuff out to a consultant who can produce a report that everyone knows with a nod and a wink is going to back in whatever stupid policy position is being pushed by the politician of the day and they don't have to give the hard advice such as you know what the hell are you doing that's perhaps not in the public interest they can just step back engage a consultant the report's delivered backs in the government policy um, uncritically um, and then the department can just apply it and that 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 avoids having to give frank and fearless advice and I think we should acknowledge there's a big chunk of that happening but then I think we should also acknowledge that there are many senior public servants who um, spent their last few years in decision-making roles handing over substantial amounts of public money to these same consultants, facilitating their access and their, their access into their departments and the decision-making, you know, giving them handsome rewards, financial rewards, and then themselves as they retire or leave the public, retire from or leave the public service, stepping straight into these same consultancies um, on a, you know, on a hugely inflated um, pay pay packet or on greatly reduced hours, but kind of as a rainmaker for them to continue to have access to the public service. And we should acknowledge that and that that kind of cultural um, and De degrading of the higher reaches of the public service. I'm not saying it's uniform, but it's real um, and it's also part of the problem. Yeah. Well, a lot of people in the public are sort of so disgusted by all these revelations. I think they feel that the whole system, even parliamentary democracy, is so corrupted. I don't want to give this impression to the public. I do. I'm a sort of reformer. I want to shore up what is, root out what's bad, and 
keep the emergency in front of mind. You know, keep it's like a wartime crisis cabinet we should be having regarding climate change and what we can do, as you said before, in yeah. our region, not just for ourselves, but for our region. But um, well, we... I'd like to end not on that note of, oh, you know, the rotten <laughs> things that you've said, but on like how to pull it back into to I'd like to pull the you know the fossil fuel industry back into line and phase them out I mean the Green New Deal people in America said they wanted to buy them out buy out the fossil fuel industry and phase it out it would be cheaper than anything anything else oh and that seems radical to me it hasn't been taken up anywhere but well well why don't we finish on a sense of kind of um hope because I think there genuinely is hope I wouldn't be in this project you know as a green senator doing the work we do if I didn't feel like there was hope so just for the moment look at what's happening in the United States you know this has been this the trenchant resistance to climate action in the United States you would think that their coal and gas lobby you know completely own the government and it would be impossible to get system change in the United States but the Biden administration and I have many criticisms of it right but one thing they did do they snuck through this inflation reduction act and the Inflation Reduction Act has already seen hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, and it's looking like it's going to be about more than three trillion US dollars of investment in massively expanded manufacturing for renewable energy um, uh, right across the, the US economy, um, from automobiles and trucks through to utility scale um, um, energy renewable energy projects then three trillion dollars is enough to provide you know huge amounts of low and zero carbon transform transformation in the united states it's happening as we're talking and that's i think kind of exciting it fills me with a bit of sense of hope you know because the task the transformation task in australia is much smaller although as a proportion of gdp probably not dissimilar but the pro task itself is significantly smaller and our ability to expand beyond our needs to become a you know a green energy exporter is even bigger in Australia. So let's just look at that and then take hope from that. Let's also look at what's happened since we've been doing this in the Senate. We've been using our democratic structures for all their flaws and compromises and conflicts. We've been using them to expose what's going on. People have been hearing about this because you elected a bunch of new senators um, and, and new elected officials in to go and uncover what the hell was going wrong. And we're doing it. We are actually in there, in Senate estimates, in our time, in our offices, uncovering what's going wrong and showing, you know, it's uncomfortable, but lifting up the hood and having a look at the motor. And, it, and it's, many people want us to shut it down and pretend we hadn't seen it, but we are going to, you know, we're going to move it from a, an internal combustion engine into a lovely little renewable. Um, uh, that's our job, but we are doing that. And mm -hmm. so take hope from that, that there actually are some people in there and almost a critical mass to, um, to start unpicking and unwinding it. And, and um, you know, never waste a crisis. So let's use this crisis to not just clean out consultants um, and rebuild the public se sector. Let's use this crisis to sort of redirect the parliament more broadly, get fossil fuel donations out of the political system, um, uh, uh, re reimagine a public service that has the public interest and climate stability at the front of it um, and commit to that together. Sometimes it seems impossible. It's not, but we can only do it if we work together.
Yeah, well, I hope when that um, risk assessment report gets revealed, I hope you do get get that out into the clear light of day. I hope it says that the ADF will be redeployed as a climate emergency task force in the region <laughs> and, and stop telling us that we're fearful of the millions of climate refugees. We'll cut off that the source of the climate change. Will force uh, maybe, 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 it says the maybe it says the Chief of Defence needs to give himself a spade and 100 native seedlings and he can do that every day and productively spend time. <laughs> yeah, well, that's silly, but what do you what do you hope it says, just to finish? Well, I mean, my hope is it says nothing to see here, it's all fine. <laughs> it won't say that, though. It no. won't say that. It's going to say that climate is our biggest security risk um, and that untrammeled climate change, un, you know, um, is going to unravel um, economies and governments in our region and create potentially hugely destabilising population flows, mm. uh, see conflict over resources heighten, um, and, and that we absolutely need to address that as an imperative if we want to retain the security of our nation and the security of our region. Um, and and what, I, what I'm hoping is that those tiny number of people in the Albanese cabinet who've read it are thinking about their kids and the future of this planet. Mm. Okay, thank you very much, David. So we've been talking to Senator David Shoebridge in Canberra, and I hope the defence portfolio doesn't eat him up. As he said, it's a huge one. But thank you for talking to us today. From a man from Fresno, California, named Wise Fonselinkum, who survived the fire by racing into the ocean with his wife and five children. The family was visiting Lahaina for dinner when they got trapped by the fire. We got really real when we saw the flames, and I had to think fast. We had to get out. We left our vehicle, and my, my, myself, my wife, and our five kids, we all got in the ocean. Uh, we found a floating board that we hung on to, and we think we were out there floating, and it was so surreal, and everything was burning around, explosions, cars blowing up, like, embers was flying, just, just, we couldn't breathe. When the, there's no air, it's just the carbon monoxide, and, and we held on as best as we could. My, my, my wife, my kids, my older ones helped with the younger ones, and we, we tried to stick out the ground. The waves was trying to take us out to the ocean. My kids were amazing. They, they were really good. Uh, a few points, my daughter, my little girl, was like, Daddy, you okay, Daddy? My other ones were like, we'll be, we'll be okay. They got us, you know, and they're really soft, tired, exhausted, and, and, and so far, you know, this ocean almost swept my kids away a few times, but, but yeah, we, we, um, we, we stuck together, we, we held on, and, uh, we, uh, we're not going to die this way, no, and then we, we're here, we're alive. That was We Say Fonselinkum who survived the fire in Maui by racing into the ocean with his wife and five children. And now here's a vintage recording, Helen Clark and Joseph Phillips singing, Don't Take My Darling Boy Away. Far away, and there 
I'm John Grimes from the Smart Energy Council. I'm here to say that Community Radio, 3CR, what an awesome role you play in getting the truth out to people who need to know at a counterpoint to the mainstream media. Keep up the great work. Our topic today is the security risks of climate inaction. And our guest is Ian Dunlop. He is an elder in the climate action movement, and I met him first about 10 years ago at a summit. He is someone who knows about change. He was an international coal, oil and gas executive and the chair of the Australian Coal Association. But now he is a most respected voice in preventing climate chaos. He's a senior member of the Breakthrough Board and a member of the Club of Rome, and they published the Limits to Growth 51 years ago. So welcome, Ian. I'd like to discuss the um, briefing from Breakthrough of August 2023, written by David Spratt. It's about a climate and security risk assessment that was handed to our government last year, but not released. The focus is on the risks to our region and ourselves as climate change accelerates. And we will be talking later about why it was not released, but why does Breakthrough um, what does Breakthrough think it says? Well, I think the um, thanks for the opportunity to talk, Vivian. I think the um, the critical issue at the moment is that, as you have mentioned, climate change is escalating ex extremely rapidly around the world, particularly in the last six months. Um, we've seen in all of these very extreme events in the Northern Hemisphere during the summer. And a lot of things happening in South America. The latest, I think, this morning is um, massive fires in Hawaii, which has never been experienced before. And so it goes on around the world. So we're essentially entering a new era of climate change, where the co constraints on the system uh, that have essentially um, dampened down the impact for the last few decades are now gradually fading away. The inertia in the climate system, the warming of the oceans is now coming through into the atmosphere, the removal of aerosols which have been cooling the planet. So this is a completely different era and any serious climate scientist will tell you exactly the same thing. Now that means we really have to wake up because for the last three decades, We've talked and talked and talked, and we've done precisely nothing. I mean, the, the only single thing that matters is getting emissions down, and they keep on going up at worse rates. Uh, and, you know, our government has continued to encourage that with fossil fuel expansion. So we're in a different world. Um, that means that 
Australians and anybody around the world need to know what these risks mean. Now, the government um, took up the recommendations of the Australian Security Leaders Group um, last when they were elected and initiated a climate risk assessment, uh, climate security risk assessment, to really establish what are the risks Australia is exposed to, because astonishingly, this has never, ever been done before. I mean, even in 30 years, we haven't yeah. done it. And if you don't know what the risks are, you can't really plan to handle them. So that um, the government went ahead um, and did that, but it did it in a strange way in the sense that it split it up into a assessment of the risks external to Australia, which are the impacts on the Pacific, the islands, the Southeast Asia, China, the globally, and a domestic assessment. Now, the um, external one was completed last October by the Office of National Intelligence. Um, inevitably, given the intelligence nature, it was designed by the government um, as an input to the Defence Strategic Review, uh, which is not something we recommended because it immediately makes it a national security issue. And the government have sat on that report uh, ever since. They don't even acknowledge that it exists. It wasn't referred to in the Defence Strategic Review, which came out in April. And um, we are now seeing these massive changes around the world. Now, the Australian community need to know what is happening. So do our leaders. And frankly, we don't believe our leaders do understand this politically or in business, because if they did, they certainly wouldn't be doing what they're currently doing, and which is you know, increasing emissions even further. Um, and our, par our parliamentarians need to know, because how can they monitor what's going on with government or talk about sensible policies if we don't actually know what the risks are? Now, the government has initiated a domestic assessment of those risks, but it's not going to be completed until 2024, which means we then have an election in 2025, which means nothing probably happens in 2026. Now, the current policies we've got are totally inadequate to handle the challenge we've now, we now have. We have very limited time in which to act. The government is sitting on this information and saying it can't be disclosed because of national security considerations. That, frankly, in our view, is complete nonsense. I mean, this is not any longer a national security issue. What do you think is in it? Yeah, well, we don't know what's in it, but um, we would imagine from what we know of the climate risks around the world, and we study this continually with key scientists, it's a pretty blunt statement. I mean, the sort of things that I will be in it are the, are the, the same types of issues that um, were raised in a report that the UK brought out in 2021. The US uh, national intelligence um, community published a report last year I mean, one thing we don't understand is why this can be done internationally and the public be told about it. And in Australia, that doesn't happen. Well, you know, why are we being treated like mushrooms? Yeah. Now, I mean, the sort of things that uh, it will say is that the world is seriously off track. Uh, that's assuming it's been done properly, which we would hope it has. It's seriously off track to meet its Paris climate targets. I mean, one and a half degrees, everybody... He continues to say politically, we're going to strive as best we can to stay below one and a half. Forget it. One and a half is gone. 
The fact is that um, it will hit us before 2030 globally, and Australia already had 1.4 degrees last year. So, uh, you know, we just have to wake up. The other problem, of course, is you get um, all of this debate about the uh, Great Barrier Reef not being on the endangered list. The reality is the Great Barrier Reef, along with coral reefs around the world, are probably gone already. It won't happen instantaneously, but the temperatures we have locked in, uh, with one and a half being inevitable, and probably two if we don't do something radically different from what's happening, we probably won't avoid two. There will no, be no more coral reefs, and I hope the report has said something like that. The other types of things that um, parallel, for example, the, the Chatham House report is, is that you're going to have, you know, something like a, like a, the sort of major problems you have are things like what's going to happen to food availability, what will happen to water availability. Essentially, by, you know, by 2030, we may well see uh, a major drop in crop yields, which could go as high as 30% by 2050. At the same time, food demand will be rising because of global population um, you know, demands. It will be 50% higher by then. So you have a major discontinuity between the fact that um, the availability of food is dropping and the demand for it is basically increasing, which is going to mean that the sort of things we've seen as a result of the Ukraine war will get dramatically worse. Um, the availability of water uh, is now becoming an increasing problem in many parts of the world, and it will also be the case here, particularly in Southeast Asia, for example, or Asia with um, the melting in the Himalayas. Uh, that melt in the Himalaya um, essentially supplies, you know, something something like three, four billion people. Now, if that starts to decline, then you have major problems there. Um, there'll be major sort of um, uh, threats to global crop cropland because of in, increasing drought exposure. You'll have increasing uh, problems with uh, people exposed to drought for extended periods of time. The, I mean, the Chatham House people were particularly focused on trying to get heads of state to understand this stuff because frankly they don't otherwise they could never be as i said never be doing what they're doing last week on the climate action show we learned about the amok and um it was an excellent interview with a danish mathematician explaining exactly how it works and you know not to frighten everybody but it's it's a massive massive system in the ocean and i want to know what do you think are the security risks when big ocean systems like that are destabilized, all these tipping points that we hear about, when that happens, what are the security risks if we don't stop using coal, oil and gas? If you don't have food, you don't have water, communities can't function. Now, that's what we're facing. The military are interested in climate from a security point of view. But the fact is that all they're interested in is, well, what does it mean for the way we fight wars and how prepared are we going to have to be and so on? Now, I mean, this is a this is a total systems issue. I mean, the AMOC is one example of big tipping point changes that will lead to a whole lot of cascading effects all around the world. So it changes the circulation of the atmospheric systems. It makes Europe probably, if it if it slows down or stops, it makes Europe colder because the um, Gulf Stream coming up the, you know, the coast, west coast of Europe um, slows down and conveys less hot water. 
which means the farming systems will change, uh, which means the availability of water will, will be fundamentally altered. And it leads into this question of, well, what then happens? I mean, states may well fail. Uh, there may be, you know, um, increasing conflict. So all of these things sort of compound and cascade. And AMOC's, you know, a big one. Now, there's, there are other, there are five, five other tipping points around the world that probably have already happened. And there's, a, you know, several others that are, are close to it. So it means you have to completely rethink the way you look at this. I mean, it's not good enough just to say, well, we've got to build up our military to be able to handle these in a conventional geopolitical sense. If we're going to do that, then it's game over. The world will collapse and it'll be the end of it. And it doesn't matter whether we're China, the Russia, uh, the US ourselves, um, we can't solve that. So you have to think in much broader terms and system terms and say, well, what are your values? What actually do you want to achieve out of this? Do we want humanity to survive? Because that's the real question we're facing. It's an existential threat now. Or are we going to continue in this conventional narrow negative argument about we've got to protect ourselves from all these nasty threats. I mean, climate change is a much, much bigger threat than China. We're fed all this guff all the time about the China threat and why we have to join AUKUS and um, we need nuclear submarines. I mean, that is not the issue at all. I mean, the Chinese have exactly the same problem. You, you've probably heard of the major rainfall and um, problems in China in you know the last couple of months or so. They're facing exactly the same problems as we are. And unless we start to move to um, massive, unprecedented global cooperation rather than conflict, then we're not going to solve this. So our leaders need to be out there, firstly, understanding what these risks are, and secondly, taking the lead in creating what I call um, emergency mobilization to seriously address the issue and encouraging other countries to do the same. Yeah. And we're not, you know, we're light years away from that at the moment, but um, maybe with the events that are now occurring, that might change. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. I'm interested to talk to you because you have a long experience in thinking about systems. Not only were you, you know, in those industrial areas of coal, oil and gas, but you've also been in the Club of Rome. How do you think this can be managed? I mean, the IEA is telling us no new coal and gas. All this is important. We've got to move away from this single objective of, of uh, continuing, continuing conventional economic growth. I and mean, we cannot keep consuming more and more. And particularly within the developed economies, the, the massive consumption is with, within that you know, relatively small band of people globally. We have to stop expending that consumption, wasting uh, energy, wasting materials and so on, putting them into sort of circular modes. I mean, all the, the ideas are all there. The problem is that the the people who really exert power 
and particularly the fossil fuel industry and the defense industry uh, are totally committed to maintaining the status quo and to hell with the, the implications of doing that in climate terms, because I think it's sad to say, but even now, large numbers of the people in those um, leadership positions do not accept that climate change is real. They've moved into, you know, what people discuss as soft denial, where basically people are accepting the fact that we have to change. But underneath, they don't really believe it. So, and that's why we ended up with things like net zero by 2050 as being the big objective that everybody's moving to. Now, the the reality is that the that um, time frame is really just kicking the can down the road. We have to move far more quickly than that. We have to try and get to zero emissions, not net zero, zero, as close as we can to 2030. And not just that, we have to draw down carbon from the atmosphere to get us back to more stable levels. We're about 420 parts per million. Now that's got to come down to 350 or thereabouts. Now, this is a this is an orders of magnitude bigger task than we have been told. And that is because, in my view, um, people have not wanted to know what the risks of climate really meant. The scientists have been screaming about it for years, but you know, as, as in Australia, you'll find that we haven't done a climate risk assessment because leaders, polit political leaders and, and business leaders, particularly fossil fuel companies, don't want to know because if they know, their corporate governance um, uh, legal requirements require them to take action. So they preferred not to know. Now, those days are going, but I think the entire system is... Um, still not prepared to face facts. I mean, the banks are still financing fossil fuel companies. You look at uh, companies like Shell that um, swore blind, they were serious about uh, taking climate action, have now reneged on the commitment to reduce emissions um, to the extent they said and, and continuing to expand their, fo their fossil fuel uh, operations. People have used the Ukraine war as an excuse, um, energy security and so on. We have to have more gas and so on. So one has to question whether people who've come through this position in all these years are actually capable of changing. And I think the only thing that's going to change it is we need massive community pressure now. People don't know where to put their energy, you know, against banks, against government, writing to MPs, you know, blockading ports. But where do you think the essential key is? Well, I think the key is you've got to get the facts out on the table. And you've got to do it completely unadorned by spin. You've got to be brutally frank about what's happening. Uh, you've got to be brutally frank because if you don't do that, you don't get the right policies that emerge uh, to solve the problem. That's the first step, which is why we've been so insistent that this uh, ONI conclusions be made public. Now, having done that, that must be the framing for the policies you adopt. And we need political leaders who are not concerned uh, primarily about the next election, which is, I think, what we're seeing at the moment with the, the Labour Party and the coalition, whether it be climate change or the voice. I mean, it's all about who's going to win the next election. Um, they need to be acting in the public interest, which is why they are, let's face it, appointed. That we've got, we have representatives to look after our interests. They're not doing it. So the system has got to be reframed to ensure that actually happens. 
Now, it means, it means you have to have, one, a good public service to be able to give the advice um, openly. Two, it's got to be competent so that it can actually know what it's doing. Three, you've got to have a legal system that is not corrupt. And I think we're seeing enough evidence, unfortunately, that um, that's not really the case at the moment. So our whole act has got to be cleaned up and it's got to be done extremely quickly. Now, that means maximum community pressure being exerted far more publicly than we're currently seeing because the i mean you that ranges really from you know discussions the sort of discussion getting community groups together um whatever the 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 uh political reaction to this is to try and stop protest so all around the country we have all these laws coming in stopping people from protesting but what do you do i mean if you get to the point where politicians are not listening where the world is going to pot, then you're going to see more and more of this sort of protest because it's not acceptable any longer. Well, that's a delicate balance because if you're not careful, you end up with fascist governments, which we saw in Europe in the 1930s. And you could argue that um, that is the way some of our governments are tending to move at the moment. We can't afford to have that. So the community must be out there. I think having this conversation much more openly whether you know it's from um, old codgers like me or the young people in the streets, I mean, we've got to get a different conversation running that forces change right through the system. Right. Thank you very much. So we've been talking to Ian Dunlop, who's really been talking like this for a long time and writing opinion pieces and inserting himself wherever he can. I think you've done a really long, <laughs> you've done the hard yards, but. Um, Thank you for talking to us and inspiring maybe some action among people who listen. Thanks, Ian. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Radio Show. Thank you to Senator David Shoebridge, Greens New South Wales, and to Ian Dunlop, from the Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration. And a big thank you to David Spratt, who wrote the paper that got me moving. It's called, What Does Australia's First Climate and Security Risk Assessment Say? Well, we still don't know. You can find the link to that on the show uh, notes at 3CR Climate Action. And thank you also to Four Corners for their show, Shadow State. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's cold. It's cold. It's cold. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Now here's part of a song by Listoire Zanzet.
It's called Islanders Without Islands. Their people displaced, their lands taken, my lands 